Today we continue our, our biblical tour of the seven churches of Revelation. Um, Russell left us off last time with Sardis. Has anyone ever heard of the city called Al-Ashahir? It's where we're stopping today. It's Philadelphia. It's the modern name for Philadelphia. It's got about 50,000 souls in it. And it's only about 30 miles from where Russell left us off on the bus last time. Um, it's a city which unfortunately suffered a lot um, because it was pretty much in the middle of a, an earthquake-prone area. And a huge earthquake in AD 17 has really shaped its history and its, its outlook on life. And much of the imagery from the text that we're going to look at in a second now has to do with this earthquake. It was started and founded in 189 BC as a missionary city to, to promote and encourage Greek Hellenistic culture and language, and it was pretty successful in that. But before we look at the Philadelphians, let's pray and just ask God to, to show us, to show us what, he, what he wants us to see, um, what our ears need to hear in this text. Lord, we just thank you that um, we can gather here, masked though we are on this Sunday morning, but what... <laughs> With unmasked hearts, Lord, we come to, to worship you, to remind ourselves of your goodness, uh, to remind ourselves of your promises, to remind ourselves, Father, of how far you have taken us to where we are today. Whether it's been a short journey in our Christian lives or whether people in this room have been Christians since children, it's been a marvelous journey, fraught with ups and downs, Lord, but you have been faithful. And today, Lord, we just want to thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And we want to see how in your word and in the history of your word, in this church in Philadelphia, how you have shown us that you were faithful to them and you are faithful to this church here today in Galway City Baptist Church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I don't know how many people in this room have stopped and watched the salmon underneath the bridge right in the middle of our beautiful city, Galway, here, the Cathedral Bridge. But I'm sure however many people have watched and stood there looking, very few people probably have said, I wonder where those salmon are going. Well, they are going on a journey, and it's a wonderful journey, because they have to fight the current there at the weir, and when there's enough water in the weir, they push up through it, up into the Carib River, swim against the flow in that river, and up into the mighty Carib Lake, where then they take different paths, some of them go to quite specific rivers. Some of them up to Ochterard will follow the rivers up there. A lot of them will go up to the Clare River. You know the one that crosses the road just on the Headford Road there? Up to Chum, even beyond, up into the shallows and small streams that are way up in the headwaters of the River Clare. And there they'll stay and wait till the depths of winter where they'll meet up with a mate and they'll procreate. They'll spawn on the spawning beds. It's a journey that's fraught with danger. They have dastardly people like me trying to catch them with a fishing rod. They have netsmen out in the bay, poachers, hoping to snigger a few of them. Birds and seals take gamps out of them. Currents bruise them. Floods actually scar them with rocks that roll down and hit their sides. And yet they pursue their purpose with singular, singular clarity until they reach those shallows at the headwaters of their rivers, the actual rivers they were born in, to finish their mission. 
And I, I remember a while ago when I was looking at the salmon this year in the, in the, in the Galway Weir, and there was a lot of them there, I was thinking, you know, that's really the Christian's lot. It's actually the Philadelphians church lot as well. They have struggled against the currents, not against the currents of the water, but against the currents of the philosophies and the religions of their days. They were also a church that was like the salmon, living on the edge, fraught with dangers. But at the end of it all, they followed their purpose and they were faithful to what they could see. They had nothing to boast about. Uh, the commentaries don't give us any idea of who founded the church. Do they have any celebrity preachers? Um, they didn't seem to have any grand missionary outreaches. They were, a, they were quite a weak and fragile church. They certainly didn't have any status. And no doubt, as it is today, you know how it is, they certainly would have been at odds with the world. And the world was at odds with them. But despite the trials and tribulations that this church had gone through, unlike their neighbours that Russell mentioned or Russell preached on last time, Sardis, only a few in the church of Sardis had remained faithful. Nearly the entire church in Philadelphia remained faithful to the Lord. Despite many of them thinking little of them, they received this letter from John, this great letter of commendation. Now, when you get a letter from a doctor or a solicitor, you often have, don't you, you often have um, letters of, of qualification above them. This letter seems to have some qualifications here. It says in verse 1 that whoever has written this letter is the holy one, the true one. Listen to this. The one who holds the key of David. He has the power to open and no one can shut. And when he shuts, no one can open. Who is this? Well, it's Jesus. And you might say, what's all this talk about keys? Well, it's, it's obviously symbolic. It's actually taken from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, pretty much word for word. In Isaiah 22, there was Hezekiah, one of the last kings, if not the last king of Judah. And he had a chief steward in his, in his, in his palace called Shebna. Now, Shebna was a shady, self-serving, self-loving sort of a character. And God, through Isaiah, prophesied that he would make this man fall and he would end up in, in embarrassment and he would end up in a, in a bad place and his robe, his honor and everything would be taken and would be given to another chief servant, a man called Elikim. And this man, Elikim, is really a prophecy and a picture of Jesus himself. And this verse pretty much is translated or is, is copied word for word from Isaiah. In those days, Elikim, or indeed Shebna, would have worn this key going around the palace grounds, fastened to his tunic. And it was a sign that everyone who saw him knew that he had the authority in the kingdom to do as the king bid him. This Lord has authority over everyone. This Lord, who now has the key of David, is Jesus himself. This the same Lord who in John, through John in Revelation 1.17 writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, these keys are master keys. They fit many doors. He's the same Lord who delegated in Matthew the job of the keys of the kingdoms to Peter and the apostles, isn't he? And he is the same Lord who shut the door of Noah's ark. Noah didn't shut the door. The Lord shut the door, and no one could open that door. And Noah and his family were brought over the waters to safety. Imagine receiving a letter from someone with such authority as this here in Galway City Baptist Church. 
Imagine the excitement there would be in the church. How delighted they would be. Verse 8, I know your works. Imagine hearing this. Behold, I have set open, set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Man, wouldn't this letter fill us with joy. Even though this church in Philadelphia was a church of, of very little power, they could have easily been swallowed up by the world around them. They had held firm. They had held firm and faithful to the name of Jesus. It, it doesn't just mean that they had expressed their allegiance and said, yeah, we're Jesus followers. They actually lived their lives in such a way that it was faithful to Jesus' name and his character. They were good image bearers of Jesus himself. Well, they received great praise and faith from Jesus for their faithfulness. And in verse 11, Jesus reminds them that his followers are those that are faithful, but those who persevere to the end. Listen, he says, I am coming soon, further encouragement. But then we have this great exhortation, and much of the letter hangs on this exhortation. He says, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Holding fast is the only thing a Christian can do, isn't it? We know from experience that our life is, is it's, it's, it's a life of battle like the salmon. It's a life of discipline. It's not something we just do now and again as the notion hits us. Jesus said, remember, strive to enter the kingdom. We're not walking into the kingdom singing and skipping. We're striving, we're struggling to get into the kingdom. It involves much difficulty, much wrestling, much anguish. But by holding fast, Jesus is telling them that we must persevere. And this letter, I think, really is about perseverance. Persevering is not easy, we all know it. No matter what you do in life, we've just after seen the Olympics, Someone who wants to excel in the Olympics, who wants to be in, in, a, in, in for a chance of getting a gold medal, has to persevere. They have to train through pain and, and injuries and many, many, many failures and many times when they're wondering, are we good enough? Am I able to carry on with this race? Should I just follow the crowd and just be, be a normal person? Why am I doing this? Why am I disciplining my, disciplining my body and my spirit? Well, it's because they know that when the day of the big race comes, they'll be prepared for it. There's no chance that they'll be prepared. There's no chance that someone will be spiritually prepared to go through the gates of heaven if they haven't persevered and discipled and disciplined themselves. So it is with the Christian. We must swim against the currents of sin. We have to swim against the tides of resistance that come from Galway City, the world, society, all kinds of philosophies and, and religions whispering things in our ears, luring us away from the disciplining, luring us away from the perseverance. This world crucified the Lord, didn't it? With great gusto they cried out, put him up on the cross. And they still say, any name but the name of Jesus. Any name but the name of Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, the Christian must not follow the course of this world or follow the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. No, we must resist him to our utmost. It's a battle for the soul. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan, you see, always stands ready to accuse us. That's the meaning of his name. He's the accuser. But all he can do, all he can do is throw our own sins back in our face and make us doubt. That's the worst he can do because do you know what? God has given us an open door to the kingdom. God holds the key, not Satan. 
He's the master of our lives. I love Hebrews. It's a book about persevering to the end. And if we turn to chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, we'll read some great encouragement there and great exhortations. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any least in any of you there be any evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember that. None of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And here Jesus exhorting this small church in Philadelphia, hold on, persevere, stay with me, follow me. The same as we're doing in this very church at this very time at the moment. We're exhorting and encouraging one another from the Word, aren't we? It's the only way we can encourage one another. Using the promises that God has instilled in our own lives to give encouragements to others. We are, says Corinthians, encouragers, so let's encourage others. We've been given this great encouragement from God. But some might think, you know what, I've, I've tried to persevere. I've, I've, I've tried this Christian walk. I've struggled. I, I have tried to strive. I, I think I've failed. I, I just don't think I can go on on my own anymore. I don't think I can do it on my own. You're dead right, you can't. But you can do it if God is with you. R.C. Ryle, a famous preacher in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, writes, Friends, he writes, there are difficulties, but God will give you grace to overcome them. God is no hard master. He will not, like Pharaoh, require you to make bricks without straw. He will take care of the path. He will take care of the path of plain duty is never impossible. He never laid commands on man which he would not give man the power to perform. He would not give man. He never lays commands on us to which he doesn't give us the power to perform. Never. This exhortation of Jesus to hold fast. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, of a hook that we hang our coats on. Because many, many of the rest of this letter are simply promises that you hang up on this exhortation. If you strive, if you, if you persevere to the end, well then Jesus will do this, will do this, will do this, will do this for you. The first of those promises we can see in the next verse, God protects those who hold fast. The first promise. Hang it up on that peg. If you hold fast, God will protect you. In verse 10, we read, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this verse is one of the most commented on verses in the book of Revelation, and I'm sure many of us have struggled with this verse over the years. It's been the root cause, I suppose, of many debates and many arguments and probably some broken friendships. The hour of trial, anyways, most people, if not all people, agree that it refers to this period of tribulation at the end times before Jesus comes back. It's going to be a seven-year period. It's going to be a time of great horrors and great judgments. God is going to be pouring out his wrath on, on an unbelieving world that still, even through the, through the seven bowls of judgment, there would be people who would be kicking against God, raising their fists to him and saying, no, we won't follow you. We, we see, like Pharaoh, all these plagues in Egypt, all these plagues happening to us. But no, 
We will not follow you. And God will be delving out his judgment on these people. He will be delving out judgment on Israel. And Satan will be delving out judgment on believers. New believers that come through the tribulation period, and some people believe believers that would actually have to go through the, the tribulation period. There's another school of thought that say, no, believers will not have to go through the tribulation period. They'll be, they'll be raptured, they'll be taken out to safety by God. The debate in this verse really is about the word, I will keep. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Does that mean I will remove you, like the rapture, so that you don't have to go through it? Or does it mean I will protect you from it? In other words, you will have to go through it, but I'll, I'll protect you from within the tribulation from it. Both readings are valid, seemingly, according to all the best commentators. You can read the verse and come with either conclusion from it. But whatever the differing opinions, the big point is this. Jesus will be with you throughout your trial. Whether he takes you away during the trial of... Whether he, he will be with the people who live through the tribulation, whether he takes them away to be with them in heaven, or he's with them through his spirit on this world going through the tribulation. There's also perhaps a picture to be painted there of two wraths. There's the wrath of God on judgment and there's the wrath of, of Satan as he runs amok knowing his time is nearly up. Well, isn't it much better to live through the tribulation if that's what Christians will have to do so that at least the wrath of Satan, bad as it may be, it's nothing compared to the wrath of God. And God promises to protect the believers in that time from his wrath. That's the one we have to worry about. Not Satan's wrath. Not the tribulation's wrath. Bad as it may be. So Jesus is telling us that our future is sure for those who hold fast. Because he'll be with them. The second promise that we can hang up on this peg is God vindicates or shows that they're right to those people who hold fast. And we can see this in verse 9. Track with me. Behold, it says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus sees all injustices and wickedness, and he hates when there are injustices and weaknesses. Are, he hates when there's terrible things done against his believers, his chosen sons and daughters. And he will judge. He will vindicate. All the Christians that are being pursued in the world now, over in the Middle East, where you will not dare hold your hand or above the wall and say, I'm a Christian, where there's tremendous pressure on churches in Africa and over in Asia, where they go to church at risk of life and limb. Jesus sees this. Jesus takes notes of this. And Jesus will judge this. And in the Philadelphians' day, this small church that were being faithful, living on the edge, they were being persecuted by, of all people, the apple of Jesus, I himself, the Jews. But these were not true Jews. They were not of the seed of Abraham. We can see Je Jesus in the New Testament arguing with them, saying, you are not of the seed of Abraham, you are of your father, the devil. These are not true, believing Jesus lovers. They don't acknowledge him, they want nothing to do with him or his people. Can you imagine at the end times when these Jews who persecuted the Philadelphians will have to stand before the Lord? How shocked they will be. How shocked they will be to see the Messiah that they rejected, 
that they hung on the cross amid loud choruses of, of thankfulness and teasing and mocking. And they'll now see that he was actually the Messiah. And he actually loved the Gentiles, those unclean people who were not even of the stock of Abraham. They were his people. How could this be? Can you imagine the confusion and the shock and the horror as they realized this? The judgment would be certain. The judgment on all people like this will be a certain. All enemies of God will be judged. But all sons and daughters of God will be vindicated, just as the Philadelphians will be. So the judgment will be certain, as certain as the next promise that God makes as well for those who hold fast. And the next promise I see is God will give future security to those who hold fast. We can see in verse 12, the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Kind of strange language, isn't it? The Philadelphians, you see, lived in an area where it was fraught with earthquakes. And in AD 17, one which had pretty much the epicenter in Philadelphia, it pretty much destroyed all of Sardis and 11 other cities. Often when these earthquakes would strike, there'd be nothing left amidst the rubble but, <laughs> but a pillar, especially of the bigger buildings. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If you hold fast, when the kingdom comes, you're going to be like a pillar among the rubble of judgment in my kingdom. You won't have to flee from the city yet when you hear the, the earthquakes coming and go out into the country as the Philadelphians had and back in again and out in again and this went on for years. It must have been like, like, you know, like lockdown Groundhog Day or something. Terribly tiring. Feeling awfully insecure. Awfully scared. No home really to go to. And Jesus says, no, you're going to be like a pillar. You're going to live in my city, the heavenly city. You'll never have to go out from it. You'll never have to flee from it. You'll never be in danger of anything in it. You'll be safe and secure in there. And this is a promise he makes to them. He says, I'll give you security. And I'll give you honor like the pillar. You'll be held up like a pillar. You'll be held up in honor in my kingdom. And others will bow down to you. The fourth promise that we can hang up on this peg of exhortation, hold fast. The fourth one is, Jesus will give the Philadelphians a new name. Verse 12, next part. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Now this might sound, again, a bit strange to us. This, this language just seems to be kind of perplexing, doesn't it? But the Philadelphians would have known exactly what this meant. Because in AD 17, when that big earthquake hit and Philadelphia was, was pretty much destroyed. The Roman Empire, in their kindness, said to Philadelphia and the other 11 cities, you know what? To help you rebuild, we'll give you a reprieve from taxes for five years. You won't have to pay any coffers, any, any taxes into the Roman coffers. This should help you. And the people of Philadelphia and the other 11 cities were so happy, they actually went into Rome and they constructed a big monument in honor of the emperor. And they renamed their own city from Philadelphia to uh, Neo-Caesarea in honor of the emperor, giving it a new name. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. I'm going to give you a new name. In other words, I'm going to give you a new honor through a new name. You're not going to honor the emperor anymore. You're going to honor me. And what this means really essentially is this. When Jesus says that he's going to give them a new name, he's basically saying, 
You're mine. I own you. You're my son. You're my daughter. You'll never slip from my grasp. What's the first thing we do when a husband and a wife have a child that's newly born? The first big task is they give them a name. A name really denotes, denotes in a way, ownership. You have the right to give your child a name. You don't wait till the child is eight or nine and say, well, you know, we've been deliberating this, honey, and we think it's about time to give you a name now. Would you like to pick one? No, it's one of the first things we do. It's a mark of ownership. It's a mark of there's something of me and that child. We have come together as a husband and wife, and we have agreed this is your name. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're getting a new name. You're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're loyal to me and no other emperor. You shall go in and out of my heavenly courts forever because I hold the key. You'll have eternal security in here. Revelation 21.3, it says, Now the dwelling of God is with humankind, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God will be with them, and, they, and he will be their God. Now, not alone are these names important in this context, but there's, there's, a th there's another promise within that. There's a promise to give us a new name. Now, no one knows what this new name is. Revelation 19, 12 says about the returning Christ that a name is written on him that no one but he himself knows. So there's no point of us here this morning trying to figure out what that name would be. We'd never figure it out. But whatever it is, it must be good if Jesus is naming us. I'll take it every time. So what do we do with these encouragements, these, these promises that Jesus is promising for all those who persevere to protect, to vindicate, to, to honor, to give a secure place, to give us a new name, to give us a, a name that means you're my child. Well, we could take a lesson from a lady called Florence Chadwick. She was the first woman to swim both ways across the British Channel. And she also did a marvelous feat in that she swam from the island of Catalina off the coast of California in 1951. She tried to swim from that island into the mainland in California. And bad enough as the journey is, the waters, as we know, over there, remember the movie Alcatraz, the waters are freezing cold. There's currents there. It's not an easy task. But on the 4th of July, 1951, when she set off, she had another terrible problem. A huge mist descended that day. And she was 15 hours in the water, swimming against the current, exhausted, but still swimming. And she was only half a mile off the coast, and she gave up. Just half a mile. And she said to a reporter shortly afterwards, she said, look, I'm not excusing myself, she said, but if I could have seen land, I might have made it. If I could have seen land, I might have made it. Shortly afterwards, she tried again. Same story. A mist descended, but this time she kept going, and she succeeded. Because you know what she did? She kept reminding herself that the land was there. And so it is with us. We can persevere in our Christian walk, just like the Philadelphians did, because we have to know and remind ourselves that the prize is there. When we feel tired halfway across the channel of our struggles, keep swimming. The land is there. The prize is there. The ultimate prize of our salvation is not some sort of comfortable life in heaven where we can cross the legs and relax. It's to be in the company of Jesus. That's our ultimate prize, to be with Jesus, we come to share in Christ. Our life is hidden with 
Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, Colossians says, we also will appear with him in glory. We share his triumphs and we share his failures as well. 1 Peter 3.5 tells us exactly what this great prize is. Track with me. Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. If you want to open your Bibles there. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Starts off, Blessed, says Peter, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, and here we are, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power, not your power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What encouragement. God's power is guarding your prize, the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key. He's a promise maker, but He also is a promise keeper. He can't lie to you. You can bank on that. It's not in His nature. He's the True One and He is truth. So, young people, what do you do when you are swimming against the currents of this life? When you're in school, for example, and some of your friends might say, well, look at, let's do that for the crack. And you know it's wrong. You know it's not God-glorifying. You know it's not going to please Jesus, but you do it because you want to be accepted by the world. You want to be thought of maybe as, ah, she or he's all right, they're cool, they're with us, they did it. And then when you do it and you go home and you think about it and you try and justify it and you say, ah, oh, well, look, there wasn't really much harm in it. It was only for a laugh. What do you do? You push against the current of this world. You remember the prize. You reach out for the prize. It's there. Or maybe you're a grown-up working in an office somewhere and your boss maybe asks you to cook the books. Maybe you're working with an insurance company and your boss asks you to sell that old lady there a policy which is just going to frisk her money. Or you're a car salesman and you sell a dodgy car to someone. And you try and justify it and say, well, look, it, that's just the way life is. That's just the way this business is. That's this world is with it. I just have to roll with it. No, you push against this current. You have to push against this current. You have to make the right decision. You have to remind yourself of the prize that's there and persevere and push on and hold fast. Even if it means tribulation in your life. You see, the more we dis dismiss our little sins as just, oh, well, look, they were just bad life choices. Everyone does them. The more we do that, the more, as we saw from Hebrews, that the deceitfulness of sin hardens our heart. And if we keep making thousands of bad little decisions and justifying them, one day we'll find ourselves where the prodigal son did, feeding out of the pig's trough, wondering how it became this bad. Or we find ourselves sitting down maybe beside a fire one night, like old David, wondering, how did I get here? 
All David did was one lustful look at Bathsheba on top of the roof. That's all it took. And his life descended into turmoil. It changed the course of history, changed the course of Israel's history, and it changed the course of David's life. Just one look, a small, seemingly unimportant first look, a lustful look. Hebrews 12 to finish off with. One more time. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. Our final exhortation. We encourage ourselves. Therefore, says the writer of Hebrews, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's referring to all the saints that had passed through the tribulation in chapter 11, let us lay aside also every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for that joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Sorry, I, I misread that. I'll read that again. Who for the, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This morning in, in this church, let's remember that Jesus went to the cross. He endured obediently. It says here, with joy even, in order that through his death and resurrection, the good news of the gospel might come to us. This news that by Jesus' spilt blood on the cross, by his sacrifice on the blood, of his blood on the cross, that the wrath of God against sinners was appeased and that God now can have a relationship with you through Jesus because of Jesus' sacrifice. This is the good news of the gospel. And to benef benefit from it, all you need to do is have faith that it is true, that it is in it, and live it as if it was true. Jesus, we thank you for this. Let's pray. Father God, as we, as we read these marvelous verses and promises and Philipp, uh, and to the church of Philadelphia, as we read the marvelous promises that you have made through Peter and through the writer of Hebrew, let us try maybe as a start this week to, to commit some of these verses to heart, just perhaps just one this week, because it's really by committing these verses to heart that we can remind ourselves that the land is there. The prize is there. Jesus is waiting for us. But we must remember and commit ourselves to, to reading your word, Lord. Because if we don't, the promises, all they do is they just grow dim. Let's keep them clear in front of our eyes, Lord. Let's not undermine what you've done on the cross. All of the history of mankind is, is because of, of sin in Adam and Eve. And the whole course of history is your story, Lord, of how you have brought about vindication for those who have faith in you. And you've given us the honor to be part of that, to be a pillar in your heavenly place, Lord. Help us, Father, to believe this when we are weak. Help us to share this when we feel strong. 
our week. Help your word to be our strength. Help Jesus to be our strength. Help us to be a changed people during the week, a people who are, have more fervor and love for Jesus, a people who are more committed to his word, more committed to one another, Lord, more committed to exhorting and, exhorting and, and encouraging and building up one another, Lord. For our maturity, for our disciplining, and for your glory, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.